The Sarah Lawrence Theater Program works, learns, and lives on the land of the Lenape, Munsee, and Wappinger peoples. We pay respect to the ancestors past, present, and future. The Performance Lab podcast is invested in the sharing of knowledge and cultivation of curiosity between makers. We invite guest artists to lead a workshop with the MFA candidates of Sarah Lawrence College. After which, we interview them. We ask questions tailored to their individual practice, delving deeper into the how and the why of creation. Inspiration is all around us. But how do we hone in on the subjects that drive us? They share with us their tips, tricks, and sources of inspiration. Reflect on past performances and projects and keep us up to date on what is next stay tuned for the performance lab podcast hi everybody my name is chisom awache i am a first year rising second year oh no um in the theater department at sarah lawrence college and today we are joined by Stephen Winter. Um, I'm just gonna go through your bio. Um, Stephen Winter is an award-winning filmmaker, writer, and artist. He wrote, produced, and directed his 1996 debut feature film, Chocolate Babies, which premiered at the Berlin Film Festival and won honorable mention and audience awards at San Francisco Frameline, South by Southwest, Urban World, and Outfest. Stephen's second feature film, Jason and Shirley, co-written and co-starred artist Jack Waters and playwright and journalist Sarah Schulman. Richard Brody in The New Yorker called it one of the year's finest films. As a producer, Stephen's first film was Jonathan Coet's landmark feature documentary, Tarnation. He's worked creatively with Lee Daniels, John Cameron Mitchell, John Krokaitis, David Brandt, and Van Cassavetes in the podcast space. Stephen is directing the science fiction drama The Space Within for Topic Studios, starring and executive produced by Jessica Chastain and Bobby Cannavale, Michael Spellberg, Sturgill Simpson, and Jessica Wu. In 2018, with Tristan Cowan, Stephen co-wrote and directed the pioneering fiction podcast series Adventures in New America, an Afrofuturistic political satire for the Nightdale Network. Um, named the best new social thriller is a podcast by the New York Times and was also compared and the show was also compared to Boots Riley and Jordan Peele. Thank you so much for being with us today, Stephen. Well, thank you for having me. Um, just to start, do you want to talk us through, or for our listeners, talk us through the um, sort of exercise that you took us through in Performance Lab? Yeah, okay. <clears throat> so my film, Jason and Shirley, is a behind-the-scenes fictional recreation, a, 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 a reimagination of what might have gone down in the Chelsea Hotel on the 1967 night that filmmaker Shirley Clark filmed uh, uh, Cabaret's uh, would-be star and male prostitute Jason Holiday for 12 hours. Uh, the resulting footage became the landmark documentary Portrait of Jason, which is which was for many decades the only film in sort of the cinematic canon that was starring and about a black gay man. And so me and my comrades of Jason and Shirley devised and produced and I directed and co-wrote this fictional imagination of what was the behind the scenes back and forth power struggle between Mr. Holiday and Ms. Clark. So what I asked you guys to do after I showed you the first 20 minutes of the film was to think of a historical or cultural moment that you're interested in and put together a thumbnail of how you might go about doing a similar thing about investigating, interrogating, and creating 
an imagination of what might have gone down behind the scenes of that event and what the relationships of the people involved were like. And uh, I'd never done that before. I've always wanted to with a class. And I was incredibly struck by how good everybody's response was. The, 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 the level of detail people came up with and the range of different subject matters and uh, 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 political possibilities were, were, were wonderful. So uh, that was what I that was what I gave you all, and that's what you threw back at me. Yeah, I was really glad that you took us through this thing that um, makes a lot of sense for the devised work that we've had experience with doing this past year. Um, being in this program, a lot of the work is devised, and this is the first um, time I've ever had to do that like repetitively just for class. And so I think we were all already in the thought space of, of how an exercise like that could go. And it was a lot of fun to hear everybody's responses. Um, and I was wondering if that was something, even if you never took a, if you've never taken a class through that sort of exercise before, if it was something that comes up in any of your other directing work, this sort of like um, taking these characters maybe out of their original settings, putting them somewhere else and, and devising the story just to see what else could happen, like outside of Jason and Shirley. Well, I mean, that, that's the essence of fiction making. You, uh, you know, the uh, majority of stories, almost really all, can, be, can fall under different rubrics of genre and story type. And when you are a writer who's uh, coming up with different story ideas, once you have a sense of what kind of story you want to tell, then you figure out what kind of archetypes you want to plop into it and see what those sort of frictions can develop. So. It's, a, it's an extension of what a writer would normally do, but only bringing in historical contexts to uh, uh, jump off from. Because, you know, the, you know, the history isn't past, it's not even history yet until it has uh, come fully around again. And we see uh, how little things can change, even though our devices grow in different directions. Absolutely. Um, I was thinking about this also in terms of adventures in New America, which I think at this point, I have listened to all of the episodes for, unless there's a second season that I am not aware oh, of, which wow. I will go Google. Yeah, the first time that you were scheduled to come in, I was like, all right, here we go. Let me Google and get all of the information and came across the podcast, I think, first. And I just want to know how it came about, where it came from. Is there merch? Because the cover art is so cool. And if it existed in any other form of media before it was a podcast. I mean, um, I love podcasts. I don't listen to many fiction podcasts, but I also know that there's a lot of room within the audio space to do a lot of things that might be a little less expensive or maybe just more doable um, if the focus is audio. Um, so I was just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Well, my writing partner and friend, Tristan Cohen, and I came up with the story about, uh, we called it back then Cancer Man, uh, a superhero story about an overweight, isolated, biracial dude who's trying, who lives in a dystopian society. And what he's trying to do is get arrested so he can take advantage of the free healthcare you get in jail because he has a uh, uh, a tumor that is in, that is critical, it could kill him, but he doesn't have the money to um, pay for the operation himself. And he gets fired for having a pre-existing condition, like all these, all these dystopian things. And so he's trying to get arrested, which you would think, well, he's black, that shouldn't be too hard. But the character IA has this magical charisma 
um, where people either don't notice him or just think he's swell. <laughs> he's so darn affable. So uh, the cops won't arrest him. And then he, uh, so he's in despair and he runs into uh, a character named Simon Carr who is uh, a fast talking black lesbian sneak thief and self-described sociable sociopath who decides in her psychopathic, psychopathic way that she's gonna become brothers of IA and they're gonna work together to make that money, steal that money really, to get him his uh, 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 operation. And that puts him into a cycle of events that finds them facing a cabal of evil, comic evil, but evil nonetheless, who wanna take over the world. Um, and this started <laughs> after that little synopsis as a feature film script that we wrote during the Obama era and nobody wanted to touch it. They were like, healthcare is not an issue that anyone cares about because healthcare is fine. Uh, racism is solved, so we don't have to worry about that either. It's the Obama years, relax. We don't wanna do this movie. Um, and it's too expensive. There's all these different, uh, as, as gritty and uh, uh, crunchy and indie spirited as it is, there's a lot of set pieces that would require a budget of some sort. <laughs> and this was also in the era before the Oscars So White movement, where the film industry, both Hollywood and Indiewood, were completely institutionally opposed to um, advancing black filmmakers' careers or uh, taking their projects seriously. And this was not endemic to the aughts. You know, this has been a, a thing that black filmmakers have gone through through the decades and also reflects what was going on in the fashion industry with black uh, uh, fashion designers, within theater arts, with black playwrights and musical writers, all the things that got boldly and finally addressed in the uprising of 2020 was still a blink barely a blink in society's eyes when we were putting this uh, screenplay around. And also everybody hated it. <laughs> they thought it was sour and uh, unpleasant. They didn't get it. it was, even friends of mine were like, ugh, that one. And it was so disappointing because like, I really liked it and, and Tristan really liked it. And every couple of years I would pull it out of the drawer and tinker with a little bit and go, gosh, I really like this one. And then a good friend of mine who was associated with the Night Vale Presents Network and the, the groundbreaking pioneering fiction podcast, Night Vale, welcome to Night Vale, said Night Vale was looking to produce, was looking to find new voices in the podcast space and produce their fiction podcasts. Do you have anything? And I said, oh yes, we do. Um, and Tristan, my co-writer, his father was in Louisiana, uh, a radio guy. So he had a lot of, love and uh, interest and knowledge about how old school radio works. I'm also definitely a fan of that genre. And so we adapted the, the, the movie to the radio drama format that it exists in as a podcast, extended it to the 12 episodes, which also allowed us to pull out the subplots and other things that didn't fit in the feature that we never actually wrote, but had sort of half thought of because a feature could only be like 115 pages at the most. And, uh, 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 but this was writing 12, 30 page situations, which gave us all this more freedom. Um, and then I realized, oh, this was actually, maybe the reason that the film never happened was because 
the film was both undercooked and overstuffed. And what this needed to be was a series. What this needed to be was an extended story. And well, it works like gangbusters. And uh, um, unlike, and a lot of credit has to go to the, to the fellows at Night Vale and Christy Gressman, who was their producer, um, they were not put off by the, the gender politics, the racial politics, the, 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 the sexual uh, aspects of it. They were all about those sort of things, which was back in 2018 when this happened, still a rare thing for um, a, a, cult, a, a arts company that is made by white people to um, prioritize. So I am always grateful and uh, a big up to, to, to Night Vale for allowing themselves to see through the muck of what culture was when it came to race and uh, supporting black artists' visions. Going back to this idea of history and, and uh, creating art around specific histories, um, both Jason and Shirley and, and Chocolate Babies, which I watched recently, um, do a really great job, I think, of sharing Black queer history. Um, as a young Black queer artist who didn't learn much about, you know, the AIDS epidemic or, or much about queer history at all, like in school, as I am currently trying to make art, I find it's almost as though like I have no legs and I'm searching for things that I'm confident have already been done. Um, and I've noticed as I've read interviews and watched interviews with you, you are always so open as far as recommending other films, artists, people for the rest of us to consume. Um, and so I'm wondering, I guess, what it means for you to continue to share and to remind younger generations of artists where we've all come from um, and just the significance of that, because you're so very open with it. And I really appreciate even in class, you were like, how many people know Sarah Shulman? No, get to know her. Yes. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I look at like uh, Black film history as being an aspect of American history that more people should know more about because Black film is so rare throughout the decades of the 20th century that every, every aspect you can find from it will not only reflect very deeply what was going on in America at the time, but what was uh, happening in today's world, you know. Like last, like the movie Set It Off, which is a 1996 crime caper about four black women played by Queen Latifah, Jada Pinkett, Kimberly Elise, and Vivica A. Fox. Um, they do some bank heists. They're sisters who are in trouble, so they do some bank heists. And at first it's fun and successful, but then it turns terribly awry, as all heists do, with the extra emotional stab of these being not a bunch of sweaty white guys, which we usually watch playing doing bank heists, but these very vibrant and well-rounded women who are black women, characters we never see getting involved in this sort of thing um, and doing it for righteous reasons or doing it because they're oppressed. That's why they don't have any money. They're not doing it for the kicks. I mean, uh, the Queen Latifah character is doing it for the kicks, but um, they're definitely doing it for the money. And this film is a very exciting popcorn picture that also mixes heavy drama with it, which is a very rare combination. But when it comes to the gunplay, it is very much Friday Night at the Movies popcorn gunplay. The guns are glorified. The gunplay is glorified. 
uh, our hero goes out with a hail of bullets, you know, Scarface style. Um, and gun culture is bad, you know, bottom line. Guns culture in America is, of course, worse now than it was in 1996 when this film came out. And there is something always a little uncomfortable watching Black characters in Hollywood films participate in the glory of gunplay. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it feels almost toxic. And you compare that to the 1968 film Uptight, Uptight with exclamation point, which is directed by the Blacklisted director Jules Dashen under the collaboration of the legendary actress and author Ruby Dee who is best known to um, modern audiences as mother, sister, and Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. She and her husband, Ossie Davis, were very important artists and activists and playwrights who started in the 1950s, uh, black and proud, were friends with Lorraine Hansberry and James Baldwin and Martin Luther King, et cetera. Um, and they devised this film that's based on John Ford's The Informer about the tumultuous events that happened to these black Cleveland uh, hardcore political activists in the wake of Martin Luther King's assassination. Uh, Ruby co-wrote the film and she co-stars in it. It was institutionally impossible for a black woman to produce or direct a film at that time. So even though she probably could have done those things as well, she, they, they, she did it, she, uh, she, she is this invisible yet everywhere behind the scenes influence of this amazing film, which has recently in the last 10 years been rediscovered by film historians. And the gunplay in that movie is cold. It's brutal. It is not delivered in a culinary, eat it all up style as it would be in a set it off. And this is also a film about black people and politics as it intersects of guns and I'm not saying either film is uh, 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 less worthy because of the gunplay. I'm saying it's important for people to look at those things and appreciate them for what they are. And also in, in, in so doing also give honor to the film ancestors, the black film ancestors like Ruby D who made this thing happen. This film was a, up, uptight was a flop in its, uh, in its initial run but, uh, um, and was sort of lost and unclaimed for decades, known only as maybe a paragraph or two in a black film history book. Until recently when it's you know, been brought forward as this missing link between the problem pictures that Sidney Poitier put out in the 1960s that were uh, a bomb to white audiences because it posited that race could be solved and the black film boom of the 1970s, the so-called black exploitation pictures where things got over the top and you know, uh, filled with the, with the bodacious crime drama of it all, which is a, another department of talking about. But in between those moments, there's this moment, an elegy for uh, Cleveland's black politics and Martin Luther King. And uh, so it's not just enough, I think, to just say, oh, this film is great. You also got to contextualize it in today's universe. So when I show people uptight in 2020, for instance, this is when they're just coming back from marching for three weeks for George Floyd. It hits differently because the, um, the tumult and camaraderie of rebellious people should always be honored. And the ones who are serving in the, in, in the pursuit of justice of black lives 
there can never be too much honor brought to them through the medium of art. How's that? Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as I was uh, watching Jason and Shirley and listening to Adventures in New America, I noticed a couple of uh, familiar names like start to pop up, mostly Tristan Cowan and, and Denise Dixon, I believe. And I hey, was uh, just wondering. Who was the second name? Denise Dixon. Oh, yes. Um, I was thinking about how in this program, we are all getting to learn sort of, especially with the devised work that we do, um, collaborate what we do and do not like as we collaborate with each other, uh, what works best for us, what it takes to be part of a group. Um, and I was wondering how important it is for you to maybe keep in contact with people who I'm assuming came up with you around the same time in the same parts of the country who are creating similar work, asking similar questions. Um, and yeah, what that, the significance of that and what it means to have folks who will be like, oh, I have this idea. I'm gonna pull you in. I think we can make something really significant or I'm gonna nudge you gently towards this idea that I think also has some weight to it that, that you yourself may not be emotionally ready to, to approach. You mentioned a little bit when you were talking about Jason and Shirley in class about how Sarah Schulman was sort of interested in doing something around Portrait of Jason, but the first time that you watched it, you were not very interested in touching that. Well, okay, so to answer the first part first, the, the, the people that you gather around you as you're coming up as an artist be, are, are your family, you know, and no matter how far away you all might end up from each other in a geographical way, as soon as uh, your, your faces meet again, you're right back where you start, you're right back where you were. Um, you know, when we went to Sundance in 2004 with Tarnation, um, I'd been to Sundance, of course, several times since then, but never as the producer of what should be a hit film. And we were all broke and sleeping on uh, the floors and eating pizza and cuddling together in the, in the crisp Sanford, in the crisp cold of Utah. And I will never forget the feeling of walking out of the first screening of Tarnation where Richard Schnickel of Time Magazine had called it a masterpiece. And it was me and Jonathan Cohen and, not Jonathan Cohen, <laughs> it was me and Jonathan Coet and the other fellows and ladies who were involved in that project just sort of grinning at each other. And that's the kind of thing that you'll never, one never forgets. So when you surround, the people you surround yourself with as an artist are incredibly key. You gotta make sure that they are supportive. You gotta make sure they're competitive in a friendly way. You gotta make sure they bring out the best in you and vice versa. And to avoid toxic people who want to tear things down out of jealousy or, or, or pettiness, or just because they don't agree with a particular project's angle. You know, there's a, it takes just as much work to make a bad movie as does a good one. And the, really the question you should be asking yourself is not is it good or bad because you know you could be wrong and tastes do change, but also is it, it's more important to think about, is it effective? <laughs> is it effective in what it's doing? And things that uh, seem like Tarnation, which is now in my head, um, we were eligible for the Academy Award for best documentary. And we campaigned for that, especially after the film built momentum and had a lot of a uh, 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 push behind it. But we didn't get the nomination. Yeah, okay, fair enough. But then we find out through the grapevine 
that the reason was is that the hardcore documentary people who are the ones who uh, vote on these things rejected Tarnation for being actually a documentary because it, create, it, it, it had too many recreations and too many um, abstractions with uh, the montage of quote unquote found footage and that disqualified it. Well, of course, anyone who's been paying attention to documentary in the last 15 years, the years after Tarnation, we'll see that these things are very much now in part and parcel of documentary language. Having artful recreations does not disqualify. Having uh, 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 creative, curious montages of quote unquote found footage does not disqualify. What qualifies you is having a great story rendered well. Um, is Tarnation the reason that that opened, its, opened up in, the, in, in that genre? Well, not entirely, no, but it is, I believe, an unsung moment <laughs> where the dominating force in the documentary field of 2004, which is no doubt straight white guys, were pushing back on the thing that was new. And there was a vibrant, but a, a vibrant minority who rejected that. And they're the ones who held sway over what happened in documentary's future and which is now our current day. So it's important that when people say something to you that this isn't right because it's not doing the same thing that's always been done, they're probably wrong. And I was lucky. Now luck is the wrong word. I worked hard on my relationships to make sure that the dominant forces in my life were ones who would push me forward and push ideas forward and support the things that were coming out of me, regardless of how wacky it might've seen at the time, because that's what works. Now, as to Jason and Shirley, the reason I rejected Sarah Schulman's initial question of, did I wanna do something on the portrait of Jason documentary film is because my relationship with that film was fraught. And, and this, is a, this is a big thing to go down. And I think if any of your listeners are interested, they should probably just Google the situation because there's a lot of really brilliant academic and social minds who have written about this topic extensively. But there is a, as brilliant as Portrait of Jason is, the documentary, it is exploitative and grimy in a way that feels negatory towards its main subject, which is Jason Holiday. He's the only person in the film, the only one who does on-camera talking, and the film kind of grinds and grinds and grinds away at him uh, until he has what appears to be a nervous breakdown. And since this was the only film in the canon up through, up until Moonlight, <laughs> uh, which had a black gay person at its center, as a, as, a, as a black queer person, that was upsetting to me. As a black queer cinema person, it was outrageous that regardless of what kind of negative stereotypes you could find in the history of gay male characters, gay white male characters in films, at least you could certainly find quite a few of them. And they're doing all kinds of interesting things and, uh, 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 and having a ball. I, like when I was coming up in the 90s, the, 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 queer, the white queer theorists of that day were very much from the 1980s uh, Vito Russo canon, which is uh, the, the, the gay characters have to be more positive. You know, there needs to be more, um, less gay murderers on film and less gay sociopaths. 
<laughs> which I, you know, as a kid rejected. And now that you look back on the whole situation, the reason that Hitchcock's rope is fabulous is because these are two gay white guys being evil. I mean, gay white murderers and sociopaths in old movies are fabulous. They get the best lines. They're sexy. They're played by fabulous stars. They, 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 they're in some sordid situations, but you know what the hey, that's what movies are about. Betty Davis is in sordid situations in most of her movies. Coming back to uh, Portrait of Jason, the, 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 the sour tone that Shirley Clark's camera cast upon him was something I just didn't want to deal with when I first encountered the film. I didn't want to interrogate it. I wanted it to go away. This is the era that comes in the wake of My Own Private Idaho where Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix play these two beautiful white boy hustlers who have romance and drama and adventure. And as a black gay uh, person, I get Jason Holiday, who is looks like for, at first glance, like a drunk who's losing his mind, but that isn't exactly what he was. And upon further examination of the film over the years, plus, you know, a little obvious, like looking, reading between the lines, you say, nah, actually, Jason is a professional. He's a professional artist. He is sitting here in front of this camera telling stories about his life for hours that are endlessly entertaining because these stories are his, the gems that he uses throughout his life to get free drinks and get invited to parties and be charming. He is a professional raconteur, a professional stand-up comedian. Uh, it's just he never has a stage. <laughs> But the fact that these stories are brilliant and, inc and, and impeccably rendered is because Shirley Clark was not just choosing a, a queen out of a hat. She was choosing the most fascinating queen that you could find in a New York bar in 1967. Therefore, you have to render Jason Holiday, the historical figure, as a real artist, as a true artist, as a, a professional artist who knew what he was doing was a conscious person. And there's a, the, the way that the, the documentary treats him is as if he is a, a, a specimen of a particularly morbid looking butterfly that gets pinned into a, a, a diorama and then examined. And what we wanted to do is pull that pin out and look from the inside out as a rather from the outside and show him not only as a fully conscious person, but also uh, an equity leader in this documentary. He was the driving artistic force behind the film as much as Shirley Clark, the filmmaker was. It was a collaboration. And uh, that was what our film sought to depict. And once I came to that understanding in my head and in my heart, then I was able to do the film with Sarah. Then I thought, I actually now know exactly what the film should be. It appeared in my head, fully blown, and now all you have to do is make it. Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us this afternoon. Um, if there are any projects that you're working on or excited about, if you are willing for people to come find you on the internet, please let us know where we can uh, keep up with your work. Okay, well, I have an Instagram account. It is Stephen Winter Sir, and that's with a PH and Winter Like the Season. And you can certainly uh, find Adventures in New America anywhere where you find your podcast. And that would be great to check it out. It, 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 it's a piece I'm very proud of.
and uh, I am working on some things, but I can't talk about them yet. <laughs> All right. Well, once again, thank you so much for taking the time. It was wonderful to get to speak with you more about your work. And thank you for stopping by the Performance Lab in the first place. It was a really nice day. Oh, it was beautiful. I love visiting Sarah Lawrence. I haven't done it in years, and I hope to come back again one day. <laughs> the Performance Lab podcast was brought to you by Contemporary Performance Network. In association with the Sarah Lawrence College Theater MFA program. For more information, please visit our websites at www.contemporaryperformance.com or www.slctheater.com.